obvious by now, we start a new sermon series today. We are going to be on a conversation together through the book of Jonah, and we will spend the next four weeks unpacking uh, what God has to say to us and through us because of this book and the way God moves in the world because of how he loves Jonah and he loves the people that Jonah actually didn't love. So let's uh, start with some prayer together, and then we will dig into this story together. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of worship, for the grace that you show us, for the fact that you invite us to sing and to pray and to praise and to listen. So Lord, uh, together now we turn to your word, and we ask that you would um, move our hearts, shape our minds and help us to know more of you, Lord, because of our time together today. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. How many of you ever, uh, how many of you grew up in church maybe and read Jonah at some point? Some of us, yes. And many of us who maybe didn't grow up in church, maybe you're here today in a church for the very first time, this is one of those stories that people have heard before. Uh, Jonah and the whale, right? The shipwreck, the big fish. This is sort of one of the iconic classic stories of the Old Testament. Jonah is one of the better known figures in the Jewish faith and um, in the Old Testament. And we are going to, uh, it, it works out nicely. There's four chapters in this book. There's four weeks in this sermon series. And so the t task before us today is to walk through the book of Jonah, chapter one. And I could, of course, recap it for you, but there's nothing better than actually walking through God's words as they are. So let us, um, let us turn now to Jonah, chapter one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, who is Jonah 
And where is Nineveh? These are important things. If any of you remember studying literature in school, one of the first things you have to figure out is who are the characters, what's the setting, all that good stuff. Jonah is an Israelite man. He is a Jewish man. He lives in northern Israel. He lives a few miles north of Nazareth, actually. And he's at a time in history when the power of Israel is on the rise, this section of Israel. And they're expanding. And 500 miles to the east of Israel is another expanding kingdom, Assyria. And the Assyrians are a dominant power. They are enemies of Israel. And at this time and historically, the Assyrians were known as a terrorizing, murderous empire. Their acts of terror were known throughout the world at that time and still have great historical significance today. They were horrible people. One of the acts that they would do when they would conquer another people is they would behead many of them and then make family members of those who had been beheaded carry the heads of their loved ones through the streets. They would publicly torture and torment people so that they could instill fear. They ruled by fear and terror. And this is the country that is 500 miles from Israel. And Jonah, as an Israelite child, would have learned stories about Assyria growing up and would have known that prophets at his time in his country said that Jonah's people would one day suffer at the hands of the Assyrians. There was prophecy that said one day they would suffer at the hands of these torturous terrorist people. It so happens that Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And so God has said to Jonah, Jonah, I would like you to go to the heart of the Assyrian empire and preach against them. It's perhaps like saying today, why don't we go seek out the inner circle of the Taliban and then sit in the middle of them and preach against terror? Tim Keller once suggested it would be like walking yourself into Nazi-occupied Munich and preaching against Hitler. So you can understand why Jonah probably said to himself, yeah, I don't know, I am not sure, God, that that's exactly what I feel like doing. So scripture tells us Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now Joppa is a nearby port city and there weren't exactly commuter ferries at this time. So he pays fair on what would have been a Phoenician sailing ship, a merchant ship. And what he does is pick a destination that is 2,500 miles in the opposite direction of where God has told him to go. It would be a little bit like if God woke you up one night in a dream and said, I want you to go to Nashville, and you booked yourself a ticket to Vancouver instead. He goes at this point in time as far as he can in the world that he knows. This is not a time in history where sailing the seas is exactly easy, but he figured a ship full of pagan sailors to an outpost would be way better than listening to what God told him to do. 
And so these pagan sailors simply means they're people that didn't worship the God that Jonah worshiped. They didn't know Jonah's religious rites and rules and customs. They would have been considered irreligious, maybe obnoxious, unclean, irritating by Jonah's people, but spending a long sea voyage with them to a faraway place looked way better than heading to Nineveh. So God not giving up here on Jonah and not refusing to meddle in his life, we read this, then the Lord sent, a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went down and said to him, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. I mean, this is the big storm that we all know about in this story, right? We perhaps imagine the crews on the ship like the deadliest catch or that movie from this summer, Adrift, right? Uh, these sailboats ramming through waves. It's complete chaos. These are seasoned sailors. And so the fact that panic and mayhem is reported in this story means that this was a significant storm. They would not have been strangers to a little squall that blew up on the water. And they're trying to figure out how to survive. So they begin to throw, as scripture tells us, the cargo of this ship overboard. And ship members, crew members are running and they're pulling at ropes, right? And masts are creaking and the ship is heaving and lurching. And Jonah, the man of God, has disappeared below deck and is cocooned himself against and away from the panic. And the sailors are not irreligious. They just don't worship Jonah's God. So they've tried to call out on their gods. This is a place in culture and history where everyone had some sort of God that they could cry out to. And they were idols and they weren't real gods. But these sailors were trying to find some divine way to interrupt the terror that they were experiencing. And finally, it occurs to the captain of the ship, there's this guy that boarded their ship and paid for his fare to Tarshish, and he's nowhere to be found. Where is he? Now, to be fair to Jonah, he's not just lounging around below deck. He's not just sleeping off dinner or hoping that his indigestion would go away or a little bit seasick. He's cocooned himself into a dark sleep. He's probably depressed. He has left everything he knows. He has left his family, his friends, his community, his religion, his safety, his comforts. The God that he grew up worshiping, that he learned could do all things, Jonah has decided to defy that God and try to outrun that God. He probably wants to die. And he's pulled himself into a little ball underneath the deck of the ship, and he's tried to wish this whole thing away. But God will not give up on him, and nor will the people who need that God. Can you help us? Then the sailors said to each other, after Jonah comes up, 
Come and let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they pulled Jonah to the deck, and they're like, what do you know? Can you help us? And they cast lots. Now, this is a, this is a cultural um, phenomenon that it, it it, uh, this casting of lots shows up about 70 times, actually, in the Old Testament. It was a way of calling down divine intervention, perhaps a superstitious measure at times. I'm told, um, as I studied this, it was a little bit like flipping a coin or drawing straws or something like that. It's, it's a way of trying to indicate where the divine favor rested or who might win in a situation. And to cast lots meant that perhaps you would put your name or a mark on a rock or a stick or something and that you would draw and there would be one that was marked as the loss, perhaps. And so who's responsible for this? Let's, let's cast lots. So in the middle of all this bedlam and chaos, they are seeking a divine answer to whose fault this is so they can fix this situation that they're in. And it's, it's Jonah's fault. Jonah's the one that's ed that led them to the edge of their lives. And so the sailors asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Who are you, Jonah? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? Scripture says they knew already that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So he had indicated some part of his story to them at this point. What have you done? Why did you leave this detail out? Why did you board our ship and lead us to this fate, your life our life is in your hands. What do we do? How do we calm the sea? How can we appease your God? We want to live and the sea is getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what, what do we do? What do we do to make the sea calm down for us? I mean, they're asking him, right? What, what do you know? What can you do to help us live? What do you know? I mean, in many ways, these are the questions of our time. We ask this question. How many of you have ever asked this question in our violent world with our modern-day version of whatever shipwreck or storm we're facing in a world filled with anger and hate and violence and greed? I mean, how many of us have looked at our newsfeed and looked around and said, who knows something that can help us? My friends who are not believers in God will ask me if there's a mass tragedy or a natural disaster or another shooting or something, they will ask me, what do you make of this? You go to church, you're a pastor. How do we make sense of this? How can we get through this? If you are a person of faith, you have probably been asked that question by someone. Hey, Christian, the world is a nightmare. What do you make of this? How can you... How do we get out of this tragedy? I mean, these are the questions of our time that people of faith get asked. What do we do to make the seas of this world calm down for us? 
And Jonah provides his version of an answer. It might even be a half answer if we're honest. I mean, he responds to the immediate crisis, but he doesn't answer the bigger question, not yet at least. And he tells the sailors, he says, well, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and I, it will become calm. And I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And interestingly, the men, they don't want to do it. Instead, they did their best to row back to land. They could not row back, for the sea grew even wilder than before. So they cried out to the Lord. They cried out to Jonah's God this time, because the word Lord is used here, not their gods. But they cried out to God, and they say, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, you have done what you please. This appears to be the thing you want us to do, Lord. And so they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea instantly grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to him. And again, we see the depth of Jonah's inability to fully engage with the deep questions and the lives of the men on this ship. He is running from the people in Nineveh and he's avoiding the people on this ship and he doesn't communicate to them in a way necessarily where they would understand more about who God is. He doesn't suggest as a solution that they all cry out to God together. He doesn't even cry out himself to his own God. He does not pray. The sailors are praying. He is not. He does not offer any insight or wisdom into who God is or what is happening. He simply says, look, if, if you want to appease God, just throw me overboard. And they don't want to do it. They try to avoid it. But eventually, they do. And then we're told, because the sea made itself calm, that God chose to reveal himself to that group of men despite Jonah. And what scripture tells us here is that they were instantly awed by the power of God, that they began to sacrifice and make vows to him that on this ship in the middle of a calm sea with a human being sinking to the depths, suddenly, quickly swallowed by a fish, they vow and pray and worship God, verse 17, at the end of this chapter, it ends very abruptly. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is a terrible story, right? I mean, how many of you are like, great, I came to church to feel good, and now this story of tragedy, of avoidance, of fear, of hatred, of people that don't seem to know God... This is a story about a man who didn't want to give up his comforts or the charm of his life to honor God's call to other people. How many of you love being comfortable, <laughs> right? I mean, I, when I get home, I just think to myself, I can't wait to put my pajamas on. I can't wait to be done with the sports carpools and dinner and it's this time of year, right? And oh, today it's going to get dark at like 2 o'clock or something horrible. <laughs> it's like, oh no, God, why, right? And I just want to put my elastic pants on and, and I want to be comfortable. And, I, and faith is like this, you guys, if we're honest. I mean, it feels good to put like our friends around us and cocoon ourselves in our Christian 
lives and we attend Bible studies and church and some of us, you want to talk about surrounded by Christians work for a church. May I come to work and I see Dan Meyer. He's a good man of God. I see Steve. I mean, I talk about people who know God and we work for Christian organizations, some of us, and we have Christian radio stations and concerts and media outlets and we have Christian schools and colleges and workplaces and books and magazines and none of these are bad things. There is so much goodness and beauty in all of these and many of these things have made us who we are. But it's comfortable to hide in all of this, right? And to not come in too much contact with the rest of the world because ah, it's kind of scary out there and there's Nineveh like 500 miles away. And what if God is calling you and I to get up out of our Christian creature comforts and go to a group of people or a place or on a mission that we don't want to do? And God says, get up and go there. And we're like, oh, but my comfy clothes are over here and I don't want to do it. This is the story of a person who doesn't want to leave their comforts. It is a tremendous foreshadowing of Jesus. I mean, isn't it interesting that Jonah gets swallowed up and spends three days and three nights in darkness, like our Lord did, in the tomb? And God leaves heaven and the divine comforts of eternity and all that is safe and cocooned and fashions himself in the shape of a human being and walks the earth for 30-some years and then dies a violent and tragic Nineveh-esque death so that we could have life. This is what's happening in Jonah. God has said to him, there are people who need to know me and I am sending you to them. I am calling you out of your comfortable church, the same seat you sit in. Those of you on the couches are really comfortable, right? I'm calling you up and out of all of that, and I want you to bear witness to the world that is asking day after day for answers to the questions that plague our time. Why is this happening? Who is your God? Can you help me make sense of tragedy and despair, of violence and grief? Can you be a person who points me to God? And we, like Jonah, have a choice. We can say, you know what? I think I'm gonna go 2,500 miles in the other direction and I'm going to avoid this. But you know what? Jonah didn't exactly end up comfortable when he bailed on God, did he? God is going to call us up and out of our comforts to witness to his love. Think about the people, and I'll close with this. Think about the people that you know who've made a difference in this world, who because of their faith have acted on behalf of others, 
who've left the comforts of wealth to engage poverty, who've had the guts to pack up and move, who've transitioned professionally or personally to put themselves in the spaces where there is great discomfort or fear in an attempt to bring the witness and the presence of God to them, the people who have gone straight into the slums or the prisons or whatever we might call God-forsaken places, who've gone over to the neighbor's house that kind of stresses you out a little bit, who've gone into their schools and their communities to bear witness. These are change makers. These are the people whose books we read, whose stories we tell and retell and maybe preach about. I was listening to a, a podcast just earlier this week, and it, the interview was a guy named Conrad Ankers, who, if you know anything about the American mountaineering and climbing culture, he's, he's the foremost living American climber. And he summited Everest several times and has had a heart attack once at 20,000 feet in the Himalayas and managed to, um, to live and was asked in this podcast why he loves risk so much, why a heart attack at 20,000 feet just wasn't enough for him to go home and put his comfy pants on and hang up his ice axe. And he responded, he said, it's, it's in me. He said, it's in my DNA. I cannot help but live on the edge. It is where my greatest life happens. For him to be truly alive is to be on the edge of his comfort. For him, he's living for the mountaineering glory and the adventure. What about us? I mean, is it possible that Christianity isn't supposed to be about a cozy church and a comfortable faith and leaving, feeling really good? Is it possible that our greatest joy and that the hardwiring of our divine DNA is to be lived at the very edge of life, where our comfort ends and God begins? The answer is yes, otherwise I wouldn't be up here saying this. We are fashioned and made in God's image, and the divine God of the universe left every comfort to find the edge of himself for the glory of others. And that is exactly what the story of Jonah is about, and it is exactly what we are called to do with our lives. And so this week, my invitation to you all is to identify your Nineveh. Who are the people that you avoid? Where is the place that you've basically said to God, I'll do anything but that? Do you know what I once told God? I will do anything but preach. When I was in seminary, I tried to change my degree, and I told the Lord, I will do anything but preach. Kind of funny, isn't it? Where have you told God, mm -mm, no way, because that's exactly where you're probably supposed to go. And so think about that this week. Pray about that, wonder about that, wrestle with that. The point of this whole thing we do is not to just come back every week and do it again, but to let it take us to the edge of life where we can move into the people and the spaces that God has called us to.
and we can shine his glory and light there. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you gift us with life. Lord, thank you that we do live in a culture and a place in history where you have provided us with comforts. And like Jonah, we like them. We like to be surrounded by things we know, by people we love, and by the comfort of, you, of, of your provision. But Lord, your word shows us over and over again, and your life shows us, God, that we are not to dwell too long in the comfortable spaces, but use them to fuel us for the adventure and the journey of following and moving and living for you and taking your love to the places, God, that need to hear it most. So may we be agents of your grace and adventure, living forever at the edge of our comfort. In the name of Jesus, all of God's people together said, amen.